Let's begin by reading from God's Word, Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, Father, through him. People in a hurry seem to continually multitask. This is true. They can drive, drink coffee, eat, monitor the radio, shave or apply makeup, and, and talk on the car phone and make gestures all at the same time. They can watch TV, eat dinner, read something, and carry on a conversation simultaneously. One obvious sign of this type of hurried lifestyle is a diminished capacity to love. Love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time, and time is one thing that hurried people do not have. Hurry kills love, and therefore hurry is a great enemy of spirituality. Hurry is behind much of the anger and frustration of modern life. Hurry prevents us from receiving love from our Heavenly Father, and it also prevents us from giving love to the ones that we do love. Do you know that Jesus never hurried? If we want to be more like him, we must also become unhurried people. We cannot move faster than the one we are following. And the Holy Spirit can help us. Patience can become one of our virtues. It's a promise that Jesus made. made. Scripture tells us that one of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. And that is a promise from our Heavenly Father. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, eternal God, we open our minds, we open ourselves to you this hour. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Like the wind that blows, that blows across our land, we cannot control it. But like a ship in the sea, 
we can lift our sails and journey with the wind. And we can journey with your Holy Spirit. We come, O oh Lord, seeking to be faithful and joyful, but we also come asking forgiveness because our faithfulness and our joy has been less than they should be. We come asking that your Spirit teach us this Sabbath day more about your truth, more about you. We desire to be filled with your promised joy. We desire to be more like you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. We pray as your Son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you were here last week, you, hear, you heard us talk about how Jesus asked a lot of questions. When someone asked him a question, he was 40 times more likely to respond with his own question rather than to answer directly. Jesus communicated it indirectly. He caused his listeners to think, to analyze his goal when asking questions or when teaching parables was the same. It was not to communicate knowledge, rather it was to elicit understanding. Information was not his primary goal. Transformation was his primary goal. Jesus knew the obvious answers to his questions, but he wasn't looking for the obvious. He was looking for answers deeper than the obvious. One day, a religious law expert, a.k.a. lawyer, asked Jesus, Teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus responded, how? With a question, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? These were easy questions, not particularly challenging. The lawyer answered quickly and easily. This is what he said. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your entire mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Luke chapter 10, verse 27. Good answer. Jesus commended the lawyer. But you know how lawyers are. They always have follow-up questions. We call it lawyer speak. In this case, the lawyer asked, and who is my neighbor? In other words, he was asking, who am I obliged to love? Should I love my family members? Does my love extend to others in my community? Is my neighbor someone who isn't in the same political party as I am? The lawyer wanted to justify himself. He wanted to be told that he was living life correctly. He wanted Jesus to say that the command to love your neighbor had limits. This time, Jesus responded with a parable. But within the parable, Jesus asked a question that could only be answered one way. The story is in Luke chapter 10, 
right after the lawyer speak, a man traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was ambushed by robbers. He was beaten and left for dead. A priest and a Levite at separate times came upon the injured man as they passed by on the opposite side of the road, but they did not offer to help. Then along came a Samaritan. Samaritans were despised by the Jews because they were ethnically mixed. The Samaritan stopped, tended to the injured man, carried him to a safe place for rehab and paid for his treatment. This story was captivating, and Jesus had the lawyer right where he wanted him. Jesus then asked, what do you think? Which one of the three was a neighbor to the man who encountered the robbers? There was only one correct answer, and the lawyer responded correctly, the one who showed him mercy. The Samaritan was the one who was least expected to help the injured traveler, who was likely Jewish. Samaritans and Jews lived separately. They believed different things. They didn't get along, which is an understatement. Normally, if a Samaritan saw a Jewish person beaten by the side of the road, that would have been an occasion for some satisfaction. Between the three who saw the injured Jewish man lying along the road, the Samaritan culturally had the best reason to think. He has nothing to do with me. But the Samaritan did not see a Jewish man. The Samaritan did not see a stranger. Yes, you know what I'm going to say next. The Samaritan saw a neighbor. Jesus asked a powerful statement about the reach of love that day with a parable and a question that bored down into the lawyer's lack of love. Of course, no one needs to, to be told to care for the basic needs of their family or their friends, but Jesus went much further. See, we all instinctively take care of our families. So Jesus went much further. Another time he said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Powerful words. As Jesus got further into his ministry, everywhere he went, there were demands upon him and his disciples. His reputation as a teacher and a healer had grown extensively. Needy people followed him everywhere. It was difficult to find time to rest. So one day, Jesus suggested that he and the disciples take a break. They boarded a boat to travel to a place they thought would give them some solitude and maybe some R&R. R&R means rest and relaxation. But that's not what happened. The word spread around the towns that dotted the shoreline. And when Jesus reached the other side of the lake, a lot of people were waiting for him. Jesus took pity on them, and he began to teach them. And before long, the sun was soon to set. The disciples were tired. They were hungry. They told Jesus to send the people away. 
the people needed to go away to find a place to eat. But Jesus had something else in mind. He looked at the disciples and he told them, give them something to eat. Can you imagine the look on their faces when Jesus said that? 5,000 people were scattered all over the hillside. How were they supposed to feed 5,000 people? Jesus surely saw the incredulous look in their eyes. So he asked his disciples this question. How much bread do you have? We know the story. They responded, we only have five loaves and two fish. This is all we have. That's all there is. And what happened next? Jesus then offered thanks to his Father in heaven for what they had. And he directed the disciples to feed the people. And everyone was satisfied. There were leftovers enough to fill 12 baskets. This was an important miracle. Do you know it's the only miracle story that made it into all four Gospels? And you would think that the disciples had learned a great lesson that day, but maybe they didn't. Sometimes we need to repeat the lessons in life until the light finally turns on. Both Matthew and Mark tell us of another miracle, almost an exact replica of the feeding 5,000 miracle. Jesus was once again teaching a large group of people. And again, he suggested that the disciples feed the people. But once again, the disciples were incredulous. How can we feed all these people here in such a remote place? Then Jesus asked the same question he had asked the first time. How much bread do you have? Their answer, seven loaves and a few fish. It was a correct answer, numerically. That's what they had. But do you really think this was the answer Jesus was looking for? It didn't, it didn't matter to Jesus if there were five loaves or seven loaves or 100 loaves. The answer Jesus was looking for was an expression of trust. He wanted to hear the disciples say, we have enough. What we have is enough to go around. That question, how much bread do you have, has an obvious answer. But Jesus wasn't looking for the obvious. Jesus was looking for trust. He was looking for gratitude. The disciples were focused on what they didn't have. People who approach, this, who approach life this way are always sure there is never enough. So out of fear and self-concern, they focus on protecting whatever they have. The disciples looked at what they had and said, nothing here. Jesus replied, look again. You have a few loaves of bread. Offer that. I will supply the rest. I'm reading between the lines here, brethren. We tend to overlook the small things. Jesus, however, values small things. He considers two pennies placed into the offering basket, a large offering when it is given from the little that you have. Jesus compared his kingdom to a mustard seed, which grows into a large tree and provides nests for a lot of birds. Jesus values your piece of bread that you bring to a hillside. 
because he can use it to feed thousands. But you have to offer it first. The disciples had feasted miraculously on bread and fish, not once, but twice. Sometime after the second feeding miracle, the disciples got into a boat with Jesus, but they had not brought any of the leftovers along with them. And so Jesus took the opportunity to make a point. He said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. Jesus was using a metaphor to warn the disciples not to follow the teachings of the Pharisees or, the, or to follow Herod. He was the king of Palestine at the time, an evil man. Those disciples must have been hungry because they started to argue among themselves about not having bread after Jesus told them to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And that response didn't sit too well with Jesus. He said to them, why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? Of course, he was referring to the two miraculous feeding miracles that the disciples had been through. The disciples were still focusing on what they didn't have. Jesus had given them a glimpse of divine power. But the disciples could only feel their empty stomachs. They seemed to forget the miracles on the hillsides. Obviously, one of our biggest hang-ups is our propensity to focus on what we don't have. When Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? He wasn't asking for a scarcity inventory. He was taking an inventory of understanding. The correct answer to his question was, Lord, we have enough. What a powerful lesson indeed. Let's look now at one of the most famous questions Jesus ever asked. It's not the most famous, but it is one of the most famous. Jesus asked this question while he was with his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi, a Roman town about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee in an, era, in an area that we now call the Golan Heights. This time, Jesus and his disciples were in a place far away from the crowds that were usually following him wherever he went. The disciples knew that there was a lot of speculation as to who Jesus really was. And normally, Jesus seemed to stay clear of that subject. But here in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus himself asked the question that had been on the minds of everyone in Palestine. Who do people say that I am? Matthew 16, verse 13. That was an easy question for the disciples to answer. Can you see how Jesus is setting them up? He gives them an easy question first. They said, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. These names were all names in the Jewish tradition of people who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Jesus then asked a follow-up question, a much more difficult question 
that has been discussed for the last 2,000 years. Who do you say that I am? You can imagine that all the talk ended at that point. You can imagine that each disciple began to look down at the ground, just hoping that Jesus wouldn't choose him to answer the question. You would think that after all this time traveling with Jesus, that each disciple would already have answered that question in their individual minds. They had seen the lame walk. They had seen sight restored to the blind. They had seen thousands fed with just a few loaves and a few fish. Why was this question so difficult? What was it about this question that caused the disciples to clam up? Okay, do you remember, and I'm talking to the married people now, do you remember how hard it was to say, I love you the very first time to your spouse? There's no doubt that your palms were sweaty. Your voice wasn't as strong as it usually was. You hesitated to say those words, not because they weren't true, but because those words had a big implication for your life. The disciples were speechless when Jesus asked this follow-up question. Maybe each of them were hoping that the other guy would have the answer. But then Peter, as we know, never one to be shy, finally cracked the silence. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He showed a lot of courage with that answer. And in response, Jesus gave him the only individual blessing ever recorded in Scripture. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. The kind of name used only for special occasions. Then Jesus went back to calling him Simon Peter, the rock. And Jesus told him that upon the truth that Jesus had proclaimed, he, Jesus, would build his church. The first question, who do Jesus or who do people say that I am? That question was easy. No commitment needed. The disciples were able to answer that question, answer it and move on. Easy. But the second question, who do you say that I am, wasn't so easy. The answer to that question could not be found in someone else's opinion. It was decision time. Answer, the answer had to come from the heart. No sitting on the fence. Decision time was right in front of them. And it was a fill-in-the-blank question. Fill-in-the-blank questions require an absolute answer. And that can be uncomfortable. Students like true or false answers because 50% of the time they can guess the correct answer. But when it comes to matters of faith, Many people are uncomfortable with the language of decision. So they substitute words about experiencing spiritual growth. They guess at an answer. Instead of making a decision, they are perpetually indecisive. That is not the way Jesus wants us to respond. Jesus does not want a wishy-washy answer. He doesn't want wishy-washy spiritual words. He wants us to respond yes or no to the same question he asked to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? 
We don't get to sit on the fence. Decision comes first, and then growth, spiritual growth, is the natural result. That is the way life works, especially in matters of the heart. Love is an amazing human emotion, isn't it? It's like magic. We don't decide to love someone. It just happens. But you can decide to commit yourself to the person you love. And when you make that commitment, you'll find that your love for that person will grow stronger than you could ever imagine. In the same way, your relationship with Jesus began with a decision. And it was then that your relationship with him began to flourish. Living your life with a commitment to Jesus is what allows your faith to mature and flourish as it changes you from the inside out. Jesus knew how difficult that question was. He wanted to ask his disciples that question, but he had to wait until they had traveled many miles together, teaching them along the way, changing the lives of many, many people. But even after all that, the disciples still did not feel prepared to answer that question. It was a difficult answer. That question was difficult to answer. It was difficult then. It's difficult today. Jesus asked that question such a long time ago. Who do you say that I am? But that question is still important today, just as it was when Jesus looked into the eyes of the disciples and asked them. Today, Jesus is still asking that same question, not directly, but through the power of his Father's Holy Spirit. Your answer is as important for you as it was for the disciples 2,000 years ago. And that's as far as our time will take us today. Next week, let us finish this message series as we look further at some of the amazing, powerful questions that Jesus asked. Amen? Hallelujah.